Go to Joshua chapter number 24 this morning, if you would. We're four weeks into this uh, 10-week series on choices and decisions, and we've thus far covered just take responsibility for yourself. That was choice number one. Choice number two is know that God is trustworthy and choose to trust Him. Uh, Choice number three was last week was choose to accept the forgiveness of God, that if you had never done that, just an encouragement to uh, know that He has forgiven you in Jesus Christ, that Jesus Christ died, was buried, and rose again for our sins so that they could be forgiven, and to accept that and to choose that. And this week I want to talk to you about choose to accept the Lordship of Jesus. And this last week was really geared towards someone who didn't know Jesus as Savior to go after their heart as best I could with Scripture's help. And this week is geared towards those that do know Jesus as their Savior that I'm coming after your heart as best I possibly can. So uh, you have fair warning and we'll, we'll get to it here this morning. So Joshua 24, we're going to launch from this verse. This is Joshua facing the nation of Israel and kind of lifting his voice. It's the very end of the book where he is really imploring them to make a decision one way or the other of who they're going to have as Lord of their lives, of who they're going to serve. And this is what uh, Joshua says. He gives them a choice, one or the other, choose. And he says this, verse 15 of Joshua 24, if it seem evil unto you to serve the Lord, choose you this day whom you will serve. And that. That's crazy to me that it would seem evil to serve the Lord, but apparently that was their mindset. And he says that. So he says, whether it be the gods which his father served on the other side of the flood or the gods of the Amorites in whose land ye dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Joshua says, what's it going to be? Choose who you're going to serve. I've chosen My house has chosen that we're going to serve the Lord. We've accepted his authority. We're putting ourselves under his umbrella and we are going to serve him and to choose him. And this morning, I want to do my best to help you see not just why you should accept the Lordship of Jesus, you should, but even why you should want to accept the Lordship of Jesus and what this means for you. Today, I wanted to launch from Joshua because I think Joshua is a powerful testimony of a man who chose who he would serve. And I think the most powerful aspect of this entire series is the idea that your life can be different, that you can choose to change, that the choice is there within your grasp, and we can forget about all of our excuses and we can begin to make decisions for ourselves of whom we will serve or what we'll do or what we won't do. And even servitude is something that we need to look at because you don't You don't fall into servitude by accident. You don't choose to serve someone by accident. It's not something that's just happenstance. You actually do make the decision that you choose who you will serve. It is is your decision. Parents don't choose for you, although your parents probably wanted to. Your spouse doesn't choose for you. I, as your pastor, I don't choose for you that you actually choose for yourself who you're going to give your allegiance to, what you're going to give your time to, where your priorities are going to be. You set that up. You order your life that way. You choose what's going to be important and what's not going to be important. And frankly, there are a lot of false masters that we put ourselves under and we choose to serve. We may not think through it in that terminology, but it's exactly what we're doing when we start to put something or someone up on a pedestal. We elevate it. We begin to pledge our allegiance and we begin to find our identity in those things when we begin to serve false masters. Some people tend to serve some idealized person. Maybe it's a pastor, maybe it's a politician, maybe it's a professor that really helped you in your life or you thought was somehow wise or you esteemed them. And that's always a trap. 
Some of you have fallen into that trap where you had someone up on a pedestal, they let you down severely, and it, and it really tinkered with your heart and really messed with you, and you had to wrestle with, was, was I putting my allegiance and was I finding my identity in that person or was I trying to find it in Jesus? But every person, no matter who they are, has a backstage behind the curtain that if you get close enough and you spend enough time with them, you'll eventually find out that they have flaws, even deep flaws, that they'll disappoint you, that they'll let you down, and you can find yourself becoming disillusioned and asking yourself, well, why did I choose to have them so elevated or choose to, to put my allegiance to them? And hopefully you don't start the cycle all over again and start to emulate someone else. Hopefully you learn from that. Some people even serve a very close relationship that they will say, well, as long as my wife is happy, then, then all is good. Or as long as my kids have what they need, then, then I'm good to go. And I just, I just want to make sure that my kids are squared away. And if you look into that closely enough, what you find is that that's extremely foolish. Psychologists call it codependency. I would just call it foolishness to say that I'm going to so attach myself to somebody that if they enter into a tailspin, it inevitably means that I too will enter into a tailspin, that I am, I am so attached to them that that has to be the case. Some people serve visions and missions and, and ideas and purposes and values that some of them are good, some of them are not so good, but you can choose to serve your company or your club or even your church or some sort of ideology that we feed the poor, we save the trees, or we help the orphans or I'll get this degree, or I'll reach this milestone, or I'll take the company to this level, or I'll break this record, that I, I put this up, and that is what I'm serving. And all of these things in and of themselves are good to some degree. Do I want you to have a good, healthy marriage that you, that you value and prioritize your family and, and your wife? Absolutely. Do I want you to care for orphans or for people that need the gospel? Do I want you to serve through your local church? All those things, yes, but you can't make them your God, you can't make them your lords. You can't choose them as masters because they will fall deeply, deeply short. Most people, though, find themselves in a spot where they want to serve themselves. Most people don't even get beyond themselves. There's some sort of other ideology or some sort of person. A lot of people, it's just myself. I'll serve myself. I'll do what suits myself. I'll help myself. I'll take care of myself. I'm just going to look out for numero uno. And a huge portion of our society lives by this philosophy that I choose me as the master of my life. I'll do what works for me. I'll do what's best for me. I'm in charge here. This really is the religion of the masses that I want to do whatever I feel is best for myself, so much so that we live in a culture where many people will reject things that are actually for their benefit out of this idealized auto autonomy that I will reject a deep relationship, I will reject the idea of marriage, I will reject any really strong friendships because somehow that means then it will limit myself. I will then have to help someone else, put someone else first, and I don't want to put someone else first. I want to put myself first. Many children or teenagers or even 20-somethings fall into the trap of, I don't want to honor my parents. I'm just going to stiff arm that to the side because I really want to do whatever is best for me. I don't want me to suffer at all. I don't want to ever put someone else first. I'll be my own sovereign. I'll be my own potentate. I'll sit on the throne of my own heart that King Self will rule and reign and I, I have my rights, I want my liberty. This is our culture after all. We have a statue of liberty, not a statue of sovereignty. So let's, let's celebrate that and let's go that route and serve myself. I read about Timothy McVeigh here the last couple weeks 
who was the Oklahoma City bomber who was caught and was arrested and was charged for his crimes and sentenced to death. And that sentence was executed and he did in fact die at the hand of our judicial system for his crimes. But McVeigh uh, pinned down the poem Invictus, which was written about a hundred years ago. And he left that on the table of his cell as he walked out to his execution room. Invictus is three stanzas long. It's not very long. And this was McVeigh's not dying words, but you could say it that way. He left these words as his testimony. Here's Invictus. Out of the night that covers me, black as the pit from pole to pole, I think whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. In the fell clutch of circumstance, I have not winced or cried aloud. Under the bludgeonings of chance, my head is bloodied, but it's unbowed. It matters not how straight the gate, nor how charged with punishments the scroll, I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. Those are, that's McVeigh's dying testimony on the exit ramp of life that I choose myself as Lord of my life. I am captain of my soul. I don't care how many charges are written against me. I don't care what the sentence may be. I'm the master of my fate. And we may not express it in those words of Invictus, but many people live in real life out of that ideology that I serve myself, I will do whatever is best for me, the end. Whereas the Christian should understand this truth, that Jesus Christ is the only life-giving master. That he is Lord and we should accept his lordship. This is what Matthew 11 says. And I love this passage. Jesus says, come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Jesus doesn't shortchange you. He tells you there's a yoke you're putting on. You're taking my yoke. You're, you're, you're understanding there's a harness here, but take my yoke upon you. Learn of me. I'm meek and lowly at heart, and you will find rest unto your souls. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus says, come and choose me as your master and let me be in control. Hand the reins over to me and see if you don't find rest. See if you don't find life. See if you don't find something that's easy. See if you don't find something that you, that you actually enjoy more, that there actually is life and there is rest in Jesus, in the real Jesus, not some caricature of Jesus. I debated this morning of, of taking time to give you five, six, seven, eight different caricatures of Jesus that people draw and exaggerate certain features But I've chosen this morning just to give you the real portrait of Jesus, and I hope that this will so enthrall your heart that you will, you can't help but to want him to be your Lord. I want us to look at one of the best passages in all of Scripture that describes to us Jesus. And my prayer this morning is that your heart would be captivated by the beauty of Christ and that you would want him to be Lord. That not just he is Lord, not just I need to make him Lord because it's dutiful, but that this is actually best for me to choose him as Lord. Go to Colossians chapter number one. We're going to read six or seven verses together to get a picture biblically of who Jesus is. This doesn't tell us all of who Jesus is, but it sure does tell us a lot. And I think helps us understand when we talk about King Jesus, when we talk about the Lord Jesus Christ, who are we talking about? To be clear, this would apply to you if you know Jesus Christ as your Savior and you would consider yourself to be a Christian. If you don't consider yourself to be a Christian, then the first choice would be to accept him as Savior. But... I think for most of us in this room, this will apply and will apply deeply. 
Colossians chapter number one. I'll just start with verse number 12. This is what the Bible tells us Jesus is doing for us through God the Father. So here's the Father that we're giving thanks to who's doing this for us in Jesus. It says that Jesus has made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light. What this means when it says made us meet, it means that we are enabled, that he qualified us, that he made us eligible to be partakers of an inheritance of the saints and light. What this is saying is that we who were disqualified in sin have now been qualified through the death of Jesus to be co-heirs with Jesus, to have an inheritance of the saints and light that we now get to take part of an inheritance that we now get as part of the saintly band, we get a heavenly home, we get a glorified body one day, we get to rule and reign with Jesus that now, not because of what we've done, but because of what he has done, he has qualified us, he has made us eligible to be partakers of an inheritance with the saints in light. Verse 13, who hath delivered us from the power of darkness, hath translated us into the kingdom of his dear son. It's saying that we who were once prisoners of sin, we who were once bound by the enemy under the sway of the power of darkness, we who were known by our unlawful deeds, who were not the children of God, but were the children of the devil, who were declared guilty by a holy God and stood no chance of saving ourselves. We who were under the powers of darkness have been delivered, it says. We have been rescued, we've been freed, we've been liberated, we've been released, we've been let go from the power of darkness and we have been adopted into the family of God. We have actually been given a family through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus that we are released from darkness. We are translated into the kingdom of his dear son. We're transferred from one kingdom to another. There was a master in Satan, but now there's, I'm translated, transferred to the kingdom. So now Jesus is my king. Now he's my authority. Now I am under his lordship. I'm in that kingdom, not not I'm set free from sin to wander the world on my own with a flashlight trying to find the right way. I'm released from sin and given a new kingdom and a new family and a new Lord. This is not I'm released from prison, have fun. This is I'm released from prison, my record is expunged, I'm given resources, I'm given money, I'm given a family, I am set up for success, I'm translated into the kingdom. I'm transferred over to the kingdom of Jesus, God the Father's dear Son. And that's a beautiful thing. Verse number 14 says, In whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins. This is what Brittany just sang about. Redemption belongs to the, the slave market. That a slave would have been under bondage and it would have been the payment of a price to secure freedom. And Paul is identifying the price for our freedom as the blood and the death of Jesus on the cross so that our freedom is secured through him and we are given forgiveness of sins through him. Don't casually read those words. We who would have groaned under the penalty of sin would have been with the burden and the guilt of sin with no hope but through God, we are now given freedom. We're now given forgiveness. We're now delivered from the law of sin. We're delivered from death. And we're given through his grace, the righteousness of Christ. And we're actually made into the righteousness of Jesus through Jesus. And it says about Jesus, here's who he is, verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature. 
You can substitute for image. You could put the word icon. You could put uh, even the word portrait. That Jesus is the visible expression of the invisible God. That God takes on flesh and lives in real life so that we can see the nature and character of God. So that we can see the heart of God. So that we can see what is near and dear to Him or what is not. You get to see in Jesus God in focus. You get to see in real life, living, walking, talking, breathing, a three-dimensional, used to be tangible when he walked this earth, Jesus, who was here, who you can, it's not not just, well, Jesus kind of resembles God or he kind of looks like his daddy. It's Jesus is God in the flesh. He's here walking with us, talking with us, a moment-by-moment demonstration of what God is like. And he's the firstborn of every creature. A phrase that many Jehovah's Witnesses and, and Mormons have twisted out of context to say that Jesus is the first of a created order, that the Father made Jesus and he was created. And that's not at all what this means. It means that he is, that he is above or superior to all of creation. It means that Jesus is over all of creation. That you cannot walk outside and say, rain, or stop raining. But Jesus could say, stop raining, or rain, or do this, because he's above it, he supersedes it, he is supreme over all of it. And it says that this Jesus, in verse 16, for by him were all things created, things that are in heaven, that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and by him all things consist He created all of it. Everything on earth that's visible, anything that you can see, anything that you can touch, you can know that came from Jesus, even invisible. That would refer to principalities and powers, as it said, angelic beings. That would even refer to some of the invisible realities that govern our universe and that that cause our universe to function in particular ways. That he created all of it and it's all made for him, it says. That all of the created order was made for Jesus. It's the ultimate reason that anything exists, including yourself, that were made for him and for his purposes, and by him all things consist. Scientists to this day are still befuddled at what holds even the, the, if you go super microscopic and you look at even atoms, the the nucleus of an atom has these these, uh, eight positively charged and eight negatively charged particles, and, and these over here and these over here should repel each other. They should go against each other, but they don't for some reason. And scientists still to this day say that there's there's some sort of invisible, inflexible something that's holding this together, whereas best we know, it should not be held together. Everything that we know should actually be blown apart, but it's somehow it's being bonded by something we can't see and we don't know. And the scriptures teach us that Jesus created it all and he holds it all together. That it all consists by him, that he is, he is the creator God. And what this means is, don't just, I want you to have a robust view of Jesus. I want you to see who he really is. That he's not just this guy who walked the earth and he's my buddy and my pal. But I don't want you to have some effeminate view of Jesus. Go read Revelation and see the portrait of Jesus right now. And it will not, it will not cause you to, to feel sorry for him or, or to water down a view of him. It may scare you, in fact, if you see who he is. But he's God. I want you to see that, but I want you to know what that means for you. What this means is that if Jesus created it all and Jesus made it for himself 
and Jesus holds it all together, what this inevitably means, logic would tell us, then he knows how it all works, right? If he designed it, sustains it, keeps it all going, then it means inevitably that he understands how it works, how our universe works, how our world works, how all, all the different laws and, and thermodynamics, or he gets, he gets all of that, but he even gets how life works. He knows how you're designed. He knows what's good for you. He knows what's not good for you. What this means is that he would understand what would lead you to life and what would lead you away from life. He would understand what would be a good rule or a boundary for you and what would be a bad rule or boundary for you more than anyone else. He would get what would be best for your life so you can know that when you say, Jesus is my king, he is Lord of my life, nothing is off limits, I want to obey his commands, that those commands will lead you to a deeper, richer, fuller life because he gets how it works. God knows the best boundaries for you, so when he gives you a boundary, you can respect it and know that it's for your benefit. He knows how marriage is supposed to work. So when you read in Scripture something that is culturally regressive, but is there nevertheless in Scripture, that a man and a woman are to come together in, in marriage, and just a man and a woman, not woman woman, not man-man, but man and woman are supposed to come together, and the man is supposed to have authority, and he's supposed to lead and to sacrifice and to love his bride, and the bride is supposed to respect that and willingly put herself under the authority of the man, that when he designs that and says, this is the way it's supposed to work, that no matter what you think, you can know that that is right. He gets it. He knows knows it. You can look at what he says on gender. You can look at what he says about honoring your parents. If you're a teenager in the room and you don't feel like it and it just, it doesn't seem appealing to me and I don't want to and I want to do my own thing. You can know that it is good for you to honor and to respect your parents and to, and to put yourself under their authority, even if you are 16 or 17 or 18. God knows how men think. So when God gives particular instruction to different genders on different things, for example, ladies are given instruction in, in Timothy and in Titus to dress modestly, which just means don't try to reveal all the time. Do your best to cover. And it means he gives other instruction that you should be concerned about the inward beauty more than the outward beauty, that he knows how your brain works and he knows how their brain works and he knows what he's talking about and he puts it all together for a reason. That all that he says, even if it's something that you would naturally bristle at or would go against your grain, he gives it for a reason and you can say, he's Lord. He's creator, he's God, he designed it all, so I'm going to accept that and I'm going to put myself willingly under that and I'm going to allow him to be Lord of my life. That's what that means. It doesn't just mean he made it. Oh, great, Jesus is our creator and he saved me. No, it goes beyond that to the personal and should attach itself to your day-to-day. That should mean something to how you live your life and who your authority is. It says in verse number 18 that Jesus is the head of the body of the church, who's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. Jesus is the head of the church. No person, no pastor. I'm not the head of the church. Jesus is the head of the church. No priest, no pope, no confession, no creed, no constitution, no board, no committee. No one is the head of the church other than Jesus. And he is the head, so it's my job, it's your job to serve his pleasure and his purposes and to allow him full control. 
He's the head of the church. Then it says this, he's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. Those two are meant to go hand in hand. He is the beginning, meaning before time was, he was. Before the creative order was, he was. He actually is the beginning, referencing his creative power. And he's the firstborn from the dead, referencing his resurrection, saying that he's the redeemer. It's saying what it's already said. Jesus is creator and Jesus is redeemer. Jesus is the one who designed the womb. Jesus is the one who destroyed the tomb. Jesus is the one that we should give naturally, logically, it flows from there, that he would have preeminence. That's the sum total of the description of Jesus, that Jesus gets first place. Now, if you want to say that's not true, I don't believe that, then that's a whole different conversation. But if you believe what the scriptures say and that's your Jesus, then it naturally only logically leads you to say he's preeminent. He's first, he's Lord, I accept his authority and I put myself under it in all areas of my life. No reservations. Not 75%, not 90%, not I'm going to tuck a little corner over here away in my heart that I'm not going to give him access to, but he gets all of it. I make him preeminent. He is going to be Lord of my life. I want to magnify him through what I say, through what I do. I want him to have full control. I want him to be behind the steering wheel. I want him to sit on the throne of my heart. It's always of saying he's preeminent and he's number one. That's the natural conclusion. And here's what Christians do. I think there's three different categories. Some Christians give Jesus place. That I will accept Jesus as payment for my sins. Great deal. He paid for my sins. I am forgiven. I get my get out of hell free card. Yay for me. Jesus has a place in my life. But, I mean, I'm not going to be like one of those little born again, you know, Christian people. There's people that just talk about Jesus and think about Jesus and witness for Jesus and everything's about Jesus and church and the Bible and all. I mean, like, I'm not going to turn into a religious zealot. Like, I'm going to be normal and I want to fit in with my family and, and, my, and my life and my job and all the rest of it. So, so I'll, I'll give Jesus a place. Thank you, Savior. But other than that, I'm good to go. I'll just do life on my own. Some people go beyond that and they give Jesus prominence, which is better than place, but it's still not preeminence. This idea that I will give you general control. Like, I will give you control and I'll hand over the reins, but I reserve the right to jump back over and, and snatch the reins from you at any time I choose. I mean, I'm, Pastor, I'm grateful for what Jesus has done. Thank you, Jesus, for saving me. I enjoy, I enjoy church. I enjoy reading the Bible a little bit on my own. I enjoy praying some. I, I give a little bit here and there. I listen to some Christian music in my car, but... I, I just don't want to go too overboard. There are certain aspects of my life that I just can't let go of. I want to be in control. And the truth is you can't straddle the fence and be an effective Christian. This is why Jesus told us you can't serve two masters. You got to choose. You can't, you can't have it both ways. You, you one or the other. You're serving yourself or you're serving Jesus one or the other. Those that are wise give Jesus preeminence. That Jesus, your King of kings, your Lord of lords, you are God in the flesh who purchased my redemption and has done for me what I could not ever do for myself. You are matchless. I give you full reign and full control. I surrender all. All to him I freely give. All to Jesus I surrender. It's, it's over. I give him everything. And this honestly is where true spiritual change starts to occur in your life. This is where you will find real life. And some of you have tried to find 
change that you know you need outside of Christianity or religion or Jesus and it's fallen short. Some of you have tried to find it inside of church or Christianity or religion, but you straddled the fence and I guarantee you that did not work either. That I, I understand my, my marriage is on the rocks. I have an addiction. I have a rage problem. I have whatever it is in your life that you're trying to fix. So you go to Jesus. Jesus, I surrender it. Help me, help me, help me. I want to be a good boy. I'm going to do this. L- let, me, let, me, let me try religion and let me try it in your power. But you don't surrender all and you don't bow your knee and you don't say you get everything. I just want your help for this one selective thing. Help me with this and then the rest of it I'll take care of on my own. And wouldn't you know it, it doesn't work. It doesn't work. You mow the weeds. They look good for about two days and then they start to spring up again. And all of a sudden you find yourself, I'm tired. I'm, I'm in a vulnerable spot. I got ticked because this didn't go my way at work or whatever it is. And what do you know? It all just starts to come right back flowing out of your heart and you find yourself right back in the place you were when you tried to white knuckle your behavior, the anti-religious way. You tried a religious way, but even that doesn't work. All you're doing is trading your chains. All you're doing is trading your problems for some sort of a religious accomplishment to try to, to try to keep up and to try to do it in a, in a religious way. But that's not the way it works. True change happens when you say, Jesus, I give it all to you. I give it all to you and I'm going to pursue you. I want my marriage to be fixed and I want my addiction problem to be gone and I want my rage to be no more so I don't get ticked and and run people off the road when they cut me off. I I want all of this to be solved, but I'm not just going to spin my wheels trying to solve this all the time. I'm going to look at you and be in awe of you and I'm going to pursue you and I'm going to tell you, Jesus, I need help with that, but I'm concerned about you. Be Lord and I'm going to pursue you. And then and only then will you find the true change that you're really trying to accomplish. You will spin your wheels if you don't do it this way. This is, he deserves this. There's no doubt about it. We're bought with a price. But beyond that, this is best for you to understand he's preeminent, so I will do it his way. I will bow the knee to Jesus now. I will give him control now. Understand that you will bow the knee eventually. Romans 14 tells us that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. You will it's just a matter of when. Now I'm not much of a public speaker. Well, on that day, you'll be a public speaker. You will say that Jesus is Lord. But bow the knee to him now. And when I say bow the knee to him, I don't, I don't wanna, I wanna guard against this thought. You're not making Jesus Lord. Okay, Jesus is already Lord. All right, he's already King of Kings. He's already Lord of Lords. He already purchased your redemption. He, he's God in the flesh, now seated at the right hand of the Father and worthy of all honor and praise. He's, all, he's already Lord. You're not making him Lord. So don't buy into the, the somewhat churchy ideology. Maybe you've heard this before that, well, Jesus is just knocking outside the door of your heart. And poor old Jesus, it's cold out there. He's shivering. Just let him in your heart, please. He wants in. Don't feel sorry for Jesus. All right, Jesus is Lord. He doesn't need your sympathy. But you do need to accept him as Lord and say, I bow the knee to you and I am choosing you as Lord for my life today. He won't force himself upon you. You have to make the decision, and it is your decision to make, that I choose you for Lord today and tomorrow and this week and this month, that this, I'm not going to be a Christian who treats Christianity like a cafeteria line where I say, oh, I want a little bit of salvation, but no lordship. I'll tip my hat to Jesus, but I'm not going to bow my knee to Jesus. That's not the way it works. 
It works as though you understand who he is and you even understand that this is for his glory first and foremost, but also for your good. And you say, I bow the knee to you. I want to be someone who demonstrates the reality of your lordship in my life over and over and over again. And don't delay on this decision. Hebrews 3 tells us that today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your hearts, as the Jewish people did in the day of provocation. That if he's talking to you and he's and you know you need to surrender, and you know that you've had reservations, you know there's been a portion of you that you have been holding back, you know that I've, I've needed to relinquish this, I've needed to come clean with my spouse or my children or my parents about this, I've needed to, I've needed to accept him as my Lord today, I, he's been calling me to change my priorities and walk away from this job, he's been calling me into missions, he, whatever he's been doing, I don't know what he said to your heart, but if there's something that he's been saying to your heart and you're resisting and you're stiff-arming and you're saying no, I want it my way, stop. Accept him as Lord and say, I bow the knee to you. I don't want people to see a battle in me. I don't want people to see someone who rationalizes their sin around the edges of their life and defends it and tries to excuse it away like it's not a big deal. I want you to be Lord of everything. Me, my priorities, my values, my goals, my dreams, my family, my relationships, my finances, everything. I, I choose to draw a circle around myself and say, you get it all. That, according to Scripture, is our reasonable service, but beyond a dutiful, reasonable service, it's life-giving. It is, it is best for him and best for you. And it's designed to be that you understand he redeemed me, he qualified me, he gave me forgiveness although I did not deserve it and died for me, he created all things, it's for himself that he created all things, by him everything consists and so I am naturally going to do what would only be logical, I will give him preeminence. And I, underst I understand who I'm talking to, I get that the vast majority of you are here 50 out of 52 weeks of the year, that you, you try to be a good person, you try to be different than those around you at work who don't know Jesus, that you want to be a testimony and you want to share. And I praise you for that. I thank you for that. I know I'm talking to a group of people that we will get to missions conference next month and you all will give hundreds of thousands of dollars that we'll just give away to people this year. I get that and I love that and I thank you for that. I even praise you a little bit for that. But that's, if you're, if you're just, I'm gonna give him some and I'm gonna do a portion and I'm gonna be, be kind of in but not all in, then it won't work. It won't work. Christianity is designed to be all or nothing. It's designed to be he's Lord or he's not. I'm serving myself or I'm serving him. That's it. Two choices on the shelf, pleasing God or pleasing self. That's it. And you have to get to the point where you say, you know what? I'm done resisting Jesus. I accept your lordship, whatever that means for you. Whatever that means for you. And I choose to bow the knee. I choose to say, have it all. I choose to say there's nothing off limits. And I can promise you, based 
on the authority of his word, but even from my own personal experience, I have never regretted a time where I surrendered it all. And there, that's a process over and over and over again. You, Paul said that he died daily, that over and over and over again, I surrender this. I have never one time in my life regretted doing that. Nor have you. But you have regretted all of the selfishness, all of the serving yourself, all of the sin felt good for a little while and then it left me super empty. You've been there. I know you have and so have I. Where, you, where you've, you've tried it all yourself and you've tried to give Jesus a portion, you be my co-pilot, but I'll be the pilot. It doesn't work that way. So I, I implore you, I beg you even, understand a decision that you need to make. And the decision is this, Jesus, I accept your lordship. You are Lord, but I accept it and be Lord of my life, be Lord of my heart, rule and reign. There's nothing off limits. You get it all. 